0: for the plan of redemption that was determined even before the foundation of the world. Father, again, we thank you that the plan was to redeem mankind, and that your Son, in perfect obedience to you, determined to come of his own volition, voluntarily. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh became the God-man, walked in perfect obedience, went to the cross in perfect obedience to you. That on the cross, all of the wrath that should have been poured out on us for our sins as believers were, was poured out on Christ on the cross, that he took our punishment, that he became our substitute. Father, as believers, we ask that you would now help us and guide us and strengthen us to live in a way that's pleasing to you, that reflects the humility that Christ had towards your plan. Father, we pray that also if there is anyone here that has never received you, has never received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that today might be the day of their salvation. And Father, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, and the humility of Christ, the steps down, Again, may we be humble. May we be about your business and the attitude that you want us to have, and that's humility. In light of the cross, may we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bible to so Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at one of the key Christmas passages that are in the Bible. One of the key Christmas passages. Now again, many times we have looked at a Christmas passage, what we would call a Christmas passage, uh, from an earthly perspective. What did, what did Joseph think when the angel came? What did Mary think when the angel came? What did the shepherds think? What did the magi think? What were, you know, what were they told It was from a more or less a, an earthly perspective? Again, given the perspective of the God-man coming. This passage is from God's perspective. This is a heavenly perspective. This is what is going through the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the the perspective of Jesus Christ. This is a a portrait of Christ. In fact, this is one of the greatest portraits of Jesus Christ Is found in this passage. In fact, let's read it together. Starting in verse 5, we'll go to the uh, verse 11, verse 5, let, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not, rob, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death. Of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. And then you'll, actually, you know what? We won't read the rest. What I want you to get is this humility precedes exaltation. That's the the point of this passage. Christ humbled himself, and because he humbled himself, God the Father exalted him. Humility before exaltation. And we're going to be looking at the humility of Christ this week. We'll be looking at the exaltation of Christ next week. We've got to put it together. Because again, humility preceded exaltation for Christ. Very, very important. It's very important in living the Christian life to understand that. Sometimes we try to get our own. We try to have it now. Lord, exalt me now. That's not the way of the Bible. That's not the way of Scripture. So we're going to be studying about Jesus Christ, a portrait of him. You know, when it comes to Christ, in Scripture, a number of times, um, the question was asked, or even asked of our Lord, who am I? In fact, in Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus asked the disciple that question, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And I will will give you this, that that is the most important question out there. That is the very most important question many times we talk about The key questions of life, who am I, why am I here, where am I going? Well, those are important questions. Who am I, I? why am I here, where am I going? But you know what the most important question on this earth is? Who is Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Because according to the answer to that question, how you give it, determines your eternal state. It determines whether you will uh, enjoy the, the glories of heaven or the tortures of hell. And answering and receiving the the question, who is Jesus Christ? And when he asked the disciples that, some said, well, you're John the Baptist. That's what some are saying, you're John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then he turns and he he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Do you see how that's important? That's the key question of life. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And Simon Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and this is how Christ uh, responds to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't get this from man, but from my Father who is in heaven. You are able to say that because that has been divinely revealed to you. And and we need to stop and remember that. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is because God has divinely shown that to you, that Jesus Christ is the only God-man who went to the cross, and because of the the sacrifice on the cross, you can be forgiven, because the wrath of God for your sins was placed on Him. Again, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, that the the God-man came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and for all those, and was died, buried, and rose again, right? And for all those who will receive Him as their Lord and Savior, He will forgive them. He will forgive. Have you ever received Christ? Have you ever put your faith and trust and hope, and I'm going to use this word carefully, only in one place, one place and that is Jesus Christ that he is the savior and i have received him therefore he is my savior have you done that it was uh, it was it was neat this last week i was talking to someone and they were saying yeah after the christmas program i shared with this person and they received christ that's how it should work by the way the christmas program should give out a lot of seeds but i'm hoping that you are going around and if you've asked someone to come and they went and now you know, get back to them and say, what did you think? Did you get the message? It's all about the cross. I wish we could sing that song again. Oh, I think at the end we are. (laughs) 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 Uh, Before I forget, because I may forget, if you want any booklets again, I really like John Blanchard. He just, uh, why on earth did Jesus come? But again, there's a number of them right here, 40 or 50 of them. But after the service, again, You know what? We need to plant the seed. We need to keep watering the seed, right? But what? What does Corinthians say? God gives the increase. If if someone believes, if someone repents, it's because God has worked in their heart. But we have to be um, laboring with God. And so again, I encourage you to do that. But the Lord said to Simon, My Father who is in heaven, He's the one that has revealed that to you. And this, again, is the great revelation of Christianity that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came in human flesh, the God-man. Not, again, not as the world says. You know, you, you turn on the TV at this time and, the, and, and you know they'll be talking about Jesus and he was a good man and he was a prophet and he was a teacher. He was a good teacher. By the way, he can't be a good teacher if he proclaimed himself God and isn't. But that he's a good teacher... You know, it's almost like you put, him, put Jesus in a box and we're glad that you showed up because it gives us a reason to celebrate, you know, as far as uh, eating food and buying presents. You know, some will even say, again, he's a, he's a, a prophet who, who, yeah, maybe even rose from the dead. <laughs> no, no, Jesus Christ is God, man. The second person of the Trinity, you know, when we start saying that he is the only way of salvation, that's where the doors start to close many times, right? Because again, he is the God-man, the eternal God, become man, God in human flesh. However, How else can I say that? So what do you think of Jesus Christ? This is our Christmas message. John 19, verse 7 says, The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself the Son of God. They got it. They got angry about it. Wanted to kill him, but they understood who Jesus Christ was proclaiming to be—himself, the Son of God. You know, in his book on miracles, C.S. Lewis offers some very helpful uh, insights, insights for for uh, understanding the incarnation. This is what he said. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about Jesus Christ coming from glory down to here on this earth. In the Christian story, God descended to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seedbed of humanity which he himself created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. And then he says, you can picture it this way, one has the picture of a strong man when you think of Christ. Stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. C.S. Lewis also said, or you could think of it like a diver. Like a deep sea diver. First reducing himself to nakedness then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanishing, rushing down through the green and warm water into the black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand, the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up in the light. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. Lewis goes on to say, the doctrine of the incarnation is emphatically at the center of Christianity, that the Son of God came down. No seed ever fell so far from a tree. Into so dark and cold a soil as the Son of God did. End quote. I like that. He goes down to come up. He, l- he gets under the weight, and he himself is the only one that's bearing the burden. And the burden is that sin must be punished. And he's come to be the only one that can be the sin bearer. That's what we're going to find in here the humility of Christ, verses 5 to 8. Before we get into this text, so I want you to see the context. I remember Dan Kenyon always you know, said, you know, you know how you need to uh, you know, uh, study the Bible? Context. And what's the next one? Context. And what's the third one? Context. Right. Let's get the context. The context is Paul has giving them an application. And he says in verse, twi- uh, verse 2, this is Philippians 2. We're right in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 says this, Fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded. Now notice the unity here. Verse 2. Philippians 2.2. The unity issue. Be like-minded, which is actually the same exact word as verse 5, let this mind be in you. Like-minded. Verse 2. Also, having the same love. Do you see the unity there? Same. Same love. Being of one accord, and of one mind. Paul, see, this is not a Christmas passage. This is Paul encouraging the Philippian church and saying, listen, I want you to have unity. It brings glory to Jesus Christ when a church acts in unity. But to have hu- unity, you've got to have, now catch this, uh, humility. To have unity, unity is built on humility. Okay, And the humility we find in verse 3. This is the exhortation. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's, that's pride. But in lowliness of mind, that's humility, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the exhortation. So what is Paul doing? He's kind of doing the reverse. He's saying, listen, God wants you to be unified. But if you're going to be unified, you need to have Humility. Or to say it this way, proud people don't get unified. Proud people have a tendency to just create constant factions. Do you know that? Proud people are factious people. you know any proud people? (laughs) Just always causing problems. Paul says, listen, I want you to have one mind. One love, same love, like-minded. You're all part of the body of Christ. God saved you through Christ's sacrifice, put you in the body. He wants... He wants unity, but if you're going to have unity, true biblical unity, you've got, it's got to be built on humility. And then he says this, let me give you an illustration of that. I'll give you a really good illustration, Philippian church. You want to have unity? You want to develop humility in your life? Let me give you a great illustration. Let's go right back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 5, let this mind be in you. See, as Jesus Christ was humbled himself... Philippians, you humble yourself, and in so doing, there'll be unity. God will be glorified through this local church. So I want you to see that connection, because, again, it's not just about a Christmas passage. It's about what did Christ do, and how we should respond because of who Christ is, how we should act. In fact, you could say it this way, this is a very theological passage, verses 5 to 11, very theological. And yet, it's all built on the premise of being practical. See, theology should lead in practical life. Your theology leads you to live a certain way. What you think and how you act go hand in hand. In fact, Paul Rees said this, Don't forget, cries Paul, that in all this wide universe and in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God in sheer grace descended into this Errant planet, planet. See, unlike other deities, other deities they they act and uh, respond according to their whims, according to their wants. You know, other false deities. You know, it's all about them. Now they're false, but the point is, is <laughs> their own interests. He goes on and says, you must remember, my brethren, that through your union with Jesus Christ in living redemptive experience, this principle and passion by which he was moved, in other words, humility, to serve the Father's will, which he was moved to do, must become the principle and passion by which you are moved, that you are motivated. In other words, as we study this, we shouldn't just walk away. And say, oh, that was a nice Christmas passage. Oh, yeah, I remember Jesus coming to this. That should move us towards humility. That should move us towards service. That should move us to sacrifice on on his behalf. On his behalf for other people. Well, let's get to verse 6. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, again, that's Christ, who being in the form of God. Let's stop right there. This is Christ's glorious position who being in the form of God, in other words, fully God, I don't know if I wrote in your outline, but fully God. The New American says this, who although he existed in the form of God, he existed in the form of God. That word existed or the word being is in the present tense. It's being. It, it, it's your essential essence. With Christ, this is his essential essence. Essence. <laughs> it's his, uh, his existence, Paul is saying. Let's... When it comes to Jesus Christ, we're going to see him stepping down from glory to this earth. But remember that he is fully God. The first thing Paul wants us to remember is that he is in the form of God. He is fully God. He has always existed as God. He will always exist as God. He can't change. In fact, the stress of the word being or the word existed is, the, again, the essence of the person's nature. It's unalterable. It's unchangeable. Christ has always been, always will be. Even when he was humbled on this earth, remaining God. And, and that's where a lot, of, uh, a lot of the theological problems of even today, uh, so-called Christianity, you know, who is Christ, where is he, and, 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 and how did he function on this earth? And some actually will say, he, he gave up his godhood for a while. No, that's, that, that's, that's heresy. The word form, again, is the word, that it's morphe. We get the word uh, morphosis, you know, like uh, something changes, but it, it, but it's always been. Okay, that's the point. And the word morphe means essential essence. In other words, the caterpillar might become uh, a butterfly, but, but the essential nature of that has remained the same. When it came to Christ, he came in the form of God and he took on the form of man, but his essential nature never changed. He's in the form of God. Always God, always will be God. Morphe. So again, it refers to an outward manifestation of an inward reality. The inward reality of Jesus Christ never changed. Now, that's the word morphing. I'm going to give you some words because I think you need to see this. That word is morphē. Who being in the form? That word form. That's morphē of God. There's another Greek word, schema. Uh, schema is something that does change. See the like a schematic. A schematic is a representation of something else, right? Like if, and if, you, if you do a schematic of this building, you know you're just putting out where this, these are where, let's say, the electrical outlets are, right? and I'm going to show you a representation of that. That's just a schematic. That's not the actual. That's just a representation of what the actual is. It's just an outward representation of something else. Okay? So you have two different words being played out, and you're going to see the word schema in a moment. The morphe is the essential essence. The schema can change, because it's not the essential es- essence. Um, I, can, I can give you an example in my own life. Uh, I was born a baby boy. And I'm sure when my mom looked at me, oh, isn't he cute? I was a man, a baby boy, a male. I have the Y chromosome, right? Do you understand biology? Right, right. Okay, I will always be a male. You can't change, I know the world tries to change, you can't change the Y chromosome. I will always be male. I will always be a man. That's my morphe. My morphe is I have male humanity, right? You see that? But my schema is continually changing. I was born at Dunkirk uh, Hospital, Brooks in, uh, in Dunkirk, New York. And then, that's when I was a baby. And then I was a, a little child. I grew up on Seymour Street in Fredonia. And then when I became a little bit more of a child, a little bit older as a child at age five, we moved to Ellicott Road in uh, Fredonia. And, and, and be, you know, I, I was a, a, a baby and then a young boy. And then a child, I mean, an older child, and then I became a teen, and then I became a little bit older, and I got married, and I'm a young adult, and I don't know what you call 54 year old. I think that's middle age. Is that middle age? I hope it is. Please tell me it is. Okay, but. The, <laughs> you know. And you get the point. The schema continually changes, the more doesn't. Jesus Christ. When it says being in the form of God, that's morphing. He is, was God, always has been God, always will be God. That, this is a very, very important point. You've got you to get this one before you get anything else. Because it, it, it gives us understanding. And that's why in like Colossians 1.15 it says this. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. What do you mean icon? The exact representation of the... Why? Because he is the second person of the Trinity. Or in John 1.1, 1, 1. you can probably quote it with me. In the beginning was the? the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word? The God. Right? And He was in the beginning with God. How about verse 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I like that one because the Word, the morphe, the essential essence, became man. Well, his, his humanity changed. He was a baby. And we're going to see that, right? Child, teen, young adult moved through the life. So when Jesus said to the religious leaders and to Ken Shutt, well, he didn't say to Ken Shutt, but Ken Shutt represented this at the Christmas program, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. See? Fully, fully God. Hebrews 1 says the exact representation of his nature, of God's nature. So in light of his full deity, his incarnation was the most profound possible humiliation that could be there. Did you see the point? If he says he's fully God, now he's coming down to this earth. That's the, that's the illustration of the most profound humiliation out there. God became flesh. God in glory came to this earth. Do you see why Paul's using this as the illustration to the Philippians? Listen, you guys are fighting, there's issues. Come on, look at your Savior. Look at your Savior. For Him to change in any way, now, now this is what I want you to get though. Glory down to this earth. For Him to change in any way or to any degree, even temporarily, requires descent. And what we're going to see is eight steps down eight steps down of of Christ uh, coming to this earth. And in in seeing this, you're going to see his humiliation, the eight steps down from glory. John MacArthur had this. He said, by definition, because this almost sounds controversial, by definition, to forsake perfection, heavenly glory, requires taking on some form of imperfection. You normally would never think of Christ in any way as imperfection, but if you think about he took on the form of a bondservant, in that sense it is, stepping down from glory. Okay, so that was Christ's glorious position. Let's look at his humiliation. First step, second part of verse 6. Jesus Christ did not consider it or regard it as robbery to be equal with God. The word um, equal or the New American says, regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, is the word isos, not isis, isos. Um, Isos, we use it once, I mean, I don't use it often, but like isosceles triangle. What's an isosceles triangle? A triangle that has what? Two sides that are equal, right? Which means that their angles are equal, at least those two sides, okay? Equal, I mean, isos, he's the isos of God, he is equal with God, but notice what it says. He didn't consider equality, isos with God, something, something to be grasped. It was used of a robber. You know who was the greatest robber of all history? Satan. Remember he tried to grasp? If you go to uh, Isaiah chapter 14, you see him trying to grasp glory, grasp the throne even. Uh, let me just read that, if so I can get it to it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14 it says and it talks about Lucifer for you have said in your heart I will ascend into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars I will also sit on the mount of the congregation I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will be like the most high Now Satan is a Satan was trying to rob God of his glory but here it says Jesus never did that <coughs> See it says that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't have to grasp at it. He didn't have to take, he didn't have to grab at it. He didn't have to grab on it, and he didn't have to hold on to it. Now, this is very important because Christ, did he have all the riches and all the privileges and all the prerogatives of being God in heaven? Did he? Absolutely. And yet he was willing to release it. Why? He didn't have to hold on to it. That was his humility, humiliation. He didn't have to hold on to it. Now, the application is for us. You know, we become children of God. And yet sometimes when God tells us to give and to serve and to sacrifice and to do it for his glory and his purposes, and you know what sometimes we do? With the benefits and the privileges he gives us, <laughs> the physical benefits, And what do we do? We grab. No, it's my it's Mike! Don't! You know, and God takes him away sometimes through trials, and you know, it almost is like we're hanging on, and like we're being dragged along the carpet. No! Don't! See, this humility has plays out in wonderful ways in our own Christian life. God says this, listen, I've given you all spiritual riches and heavenly in the places in Christ Jesus, but you may not experience all this stuff completely. You won't experience on this earth Have your hand open. Don't grasp it. Jesus refused to cling to that equality, to the privileges, to the rights, and the advantages as God. And although he continued to fully exist as God and have all those rights and privileges during his incarnation, he refused to hold on to them. He refused to, you know, like like a death grip. As one man said, it is that attitude of selfless giving of oneself and one's possessions, power, and privileges that should characterize all who belong to Christ. Willing to sacrifice our blessings for the benefits of others. No, no, he, he did not consider it something of equal to God and all the, all the privileges something to be grasped. He He was willing to release. That's the first step down. The decision, I'm going to the earth. Number two. Step down number two. Uh, This starts in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. I I really like the New American here. It says, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. It's canoe. We get the word kenosis. uh, The kenosis of Christ. The self-emptying, the voluntary self-emptying. This passage in Philippians just drips with theology. I mean, you get the kenosis theory, and then the two natures of Christ come out of this passage. And it's a passage to illustrate how we should be humble. I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal how theology works in the practical life, and this just drips with who Christ is. But this is the self-emptying of Christ. This expresses this no reputation or the word emptied himself. And I I hope your versions have, you know, you're following where I'm at first part of verse 7. It expresses Christ's self-renunciation, his refusal to cling to his advantages and privileges before God because he was God, right? He refuses to cling to and hold on to those privileges and All that he had, the advantages. Again, being equal with God didn't lead Christ to fill himself up, but to instead empty himself. It gave the freedom to release. Let's say it that way. He released. He released. Now, we've got to answer this question. What does it mean to empty himself? Because bad theologians and heretics will say this. He emptied himself of Godhood while he was on this earth. And I just... No, let me say it in a number way. He was always God, he always remained God, he never was anything but God. You get that? He was fully God. Kind of going back to that first point we did. Fully God. It does not re- refer to his deity. He coexisted with the Father. His his deity was never surrendered. He did not exchange deity for humanity. That's what heretics will say. Oh no, he uh, exchanged the deity for the for humanity, and the man Jesus walked, and then at the end, you know, the, the spirit of Christ and the Christ, uh, deity of Christ came back on him. No, no, always remained God. But he emptied himself, or to say it this way, if 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 he emptied himself from deity, he would have he would have he stopped being God. In fact, the Trinity itself would have been destroyed. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of implications of that. So again, always God. But what did he empty himself of? Again, the prerogatives, the, the privileges, the advantages that he had of being God, okay, of being the God-man. So again, uh, I like what uh, Paul ends, I think it was, said, you know, the emptying was not so much a subtraction as an addition. The God-man, the divine, the, uh, Christ's divine nature was going to take on human nature. So the, 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 uh, the emptying was, a, was not a subtraction, but it was an addition to him. Now he's going to have two natures, divine and human, all in one person. Okay? I hope I'm not getting too deep for you. Because this is critical. This, see, we need to be able to defend who Jesus Christ is. This is who Christ is. So again, the emptying of Christ was taking on an additional nature. A human nature with all its limitations. His deity was never surrendered. Now, it didn't mean that he didn't have it. Remember when he was up on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 17, he brought the three disciples up. And what did he do? Just for a moment of time, he, 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 he pulled back the veil of his humanity. And what did they see? The transfiguration, the glory of Christ. Right? It's like he just pulled back the veil and said, this is who I am. Just because you see me walking in flesh, this is who I am. So again, we have to um, remember. Let me give you a few things that he gave up. He gave up the heavenly glory. He went from adoring angels to an angry mob. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men. He gave up heavenly glory. He also gave up, he surrendered the independent use of some of his attributes. Remember when the soldiers were looking for him? And it says, I am he. And what do they do? They fell down to the ground. He had the power, but he just didn't use it. It was through the power of the Spirit. Or Matthew 24, where he's asked the question of when he's coming back, and he said this, of that day and hour, no one knows my return except for the Father alone. Now remember, Matthew 24 was given before he went to the cross, before he was glorified. Does Jesus Christ now today know when he's coming back? Yes. Absolutely. It's just at that time he gave up the independent use of his omniscience. No man knows the day or the hour. Why? Because he was walking as the God-man on this earth. He gave up the uh, independent authority. He came to do the Father's will. He, He became a true servant, a true slave. Number four, he divested of heavenly riches. Though he was rich, Corinthians says, yet for your sake he became poor. He became poor. He was poor. Don't ever look at your riches as a sign of blessing from God. Jesus Christ was poor. In fact, he was so poor, think about this. I'm not saying not to have riches. I'm just saying don't make that association. That's not acceptable. I mean, Jesus Christ had had to find a borrowed place to be born in. He had to borrow the manger. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to ride into Jerusalem with. He had to borrow a room for the Passover and he had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. He was borrowing all the time. I think American Christianity would look at him as a loser. No, he gave up his riches. He owned all and he waived all his rights for us and for the Father's purpose. And then finally, he he gave up his favorable relationship to God because God made him, Corinthians says, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Or as Isaiah 53 5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And they're talking about healed in the spiritual sense. We're healed. We're forgiven all because of what He took on. That's why on the cross, the perfect Lamb of God said what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father placing the the sin on His Son, the perfect Lamb, took the penalty for the sin the Father turned, as it were, His back. And so when Christ came to this earth, He gave up favorable relationship with God the perfect fellowship that he had always experienced he laid that aside he emptied himself of that that knowing that when on the cross the fury of of uh, of judgment was going to be poured out on him and he was willing to say that he gave it up he gave it up for the father's will for our purpo- for our benefit father's will and purpose for our benefit okay so that's what he emptied himself of i mean now you just listen to that thing When I was studying this week, I'm like, Lord, help me to be selfless. Lord, help me to be sacrificial. I am so selfish. I want to hold. And God says, if you want to be godly, release. Because let me tell you, when you're a child of God, it's yours. But if you're willing to release it here, you'll get it there. But if you want to keep it here, you will lose it there. I'm just talking about... When I mean lose, I don't mean salvation. I'm saying... God gives us rights and privileges and and abilities and gifts and all that stuff. And he says, use it. Use it for others. Don't hold on to it. Be like Christ, a humble servant who did the will of the Father. Number three, taking the form of a bondservant. That's the word morphe again. You would have thought he would have used schema. No, no. no, You know why he used morphe? Because he had the true heart of, of a, a servant. Actually that word bondservant, I think some of your other versions say, it's actually the word slave. Jesus Christ came and he had the 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 heart of a a slave. He had the the internal essence to do the Father's will. That I think that might have impressed me the most of anything I studied this week. I was like, Lord, I guess I sometimes think of him maybe superficially serving. Oh, I'm going to come No no. He had the heart of a of a servant, of a slave. The God coming to this earth, taking on the form of a bond servant. Not my will, but yours be done. He said on another occasion, I do what the Father shows me. Matthew twenty, he did not come to be served, but to serve. John thirteen, he what? wash the disciples' feet. Isn't he always serving us? Serving us by saving us. Serving us by giving the Spirit. Serving us by giving the Spirit who enlightens us. And then, and then as our high priest, he is interceding for us. He's always serving. When you serve, I hope you remember, you know, I want to be like Jesus. I want to serve. That's what one of the sad things about our Christmas in America. Sometimes it becomes so selfish. Things and stuff. I understand Christ gave and gave, but he gave. <laughs> you know, and I know that's where the present thing comes from, but sometimes that creates more negatives, I think, than positives. He gave. Interesting illustration. After winning a gold medal in the 24 Olympics in Paris, Scottish runner Rick, or Eric Liddell, remember Eric Liddell, you know, anyways, the runner, okay, Uh, served as a missionary. After he he won the gold, he served as a missionary in China. He died in a prison camp during World War II. The camp's prisoners loved Eric, I mean, because he served them so unselfishly. But what was interesting, it wasn't until his funeral that they first learned that he was an Olympic hero. See, he wasn't there as an Olympic hero in the prison. He wasn't saying, count me as something special. He just was serving. Just serving the Lord that he loved. So again, Jesus Christ, third step down, taking the form of a bondservant. And then look at the next one. Step down, number four. And coming in the likeness of men. Again, fully God, fully man. Actually, this is where you get the word the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came fully God, fully man. Uh, two natures, God, man, both nature of God, nature of man, all in one person. And, this is the other important part, no intermixing. See, there was not intermixing. God, man, s- remained separate in the one person of Christ. like I said, if you want a theological term, that's a hypostatic union. Now, as such, the reality is, he was perfect, yet without sin. That's why he can be our high priest. He's the God-man. So again, the word likeness here refers to that which is made to be like something else, not just in appearance, but in reality. So when it says, in the likeness of men, in reality, not just in appearance, not superficially, in reality, he became a man. He became a man. Now, that's important because I think... Sometimes when you, uh, you know, you see pictures of Jesus, you, you know, he has like the halo thing. No, no he, he appeared like a man. In fact, that's the next thing he's going to do. He came as a man, he appeared like a man. They didn't know he was anything but a man. But he was fully man. That's this point. He was fully man. And his humanity was not, as one man said, like the pre-fall of Adam. Sometimes you say, oh, he came, but it was just like before Genesis 3. Before. No, no. He came as a man after Genesis 3. Why? Because he had to, t- he had to come in a, a, as a man with all the frailties and limitations and problems and be able to suffer and be able to suffer for our sins. Now, when I say frailties and limitations, I'm not talking any sin here. All I'm talking about is after Adam's sin, he was able to die. That's why we know he came as a Genesis 3. Okay, but yet the sin didn't touch him. Why? Because he was born of a woman, and and Joseph was not the real father. I liked what uh, um, Jessica said during the um, the Christmas program. A biological miracle had been placed in Mary's womb. She would give birth to a boy who would not be the son of Joseph. But uniquely the Son of God. This is important because sin is passed on to each human through Adam. And since Jesus had no human father, sin's legal stain did not touch him. But he was fully man. Fully man. Therefore, he could take our place because he was born of a woman in the body of flesh, as what is it? Colossians says. So he was able to identify, because notice what it says. And coming in the likeness of not man, not like an individual, not a. No, in, in men, in the likeness of men. He was, be, he was able to be our representation. He represented not an individual man, but the human race. That's what Romans 5 says. For as by one's man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners, so also by the, the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ came. He was born, not just as God... He's the God-man, and as such, he's able to represent us on the cross. But he's perfect. Total perfection. He was a real man who took away our sin, dying as a real substitute for sinners. Well, these last four are going to go very quickly. Number, fifth step down. And these keep stepping down. You've got to look at this. Fully God. Likeness of men. Keeps, he keep, these are the steps. Remember I told you this is, this is a heavenly perspective of who Christ is. This step in being found in appearance. That's the word schema. He looked like a man. Appearance as a man. Not morphe. Not the word for likeness. No, no. He, people viewed him like a man. His outward appearance was like a man. He, by the way, he grew like a man says that in Luke 2, verse 52. Grew in wisdom and stature. So he was a a baby. Sometimes we think of Jesus like this. You know, like he's looking up at Mary after birth and and like, you have no idea who you're holding. That's not how Jesus thought. He was a baby. Protected by the Spirit of God. But he's a baby. Two, four, six. Perfect? Yes. Baby. He's learning. He's growing. wasn't until, I think, around 12 that I... As, now, one commentator says probably around that age when he started to realize his divine purpose because see, he came and he laid aside his prerogative of omniscience. And, and that's, why we are, that's why people had to be told who he was. That's why the, the father at his baptism said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Because if you didn't have God the father saying that or the angel proclaiming it to Mary or Joseph, you would have just said that's just a normal baby. Oh, he seems like he's a really good kid, but he's normal. No. He looked just like a man. He acted like a man, except without sin. See, his his deity had to be revealed by the angels and by his father. That's the fifth step in the appearance of a man. Number six, he humbled himself. Now, that goes from form and nature to attitude. I want you to see... When he says he humbled himself, now he's not talking about form. He's not talking about appearance or likeness. He's talking about attitude. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die, not because the Father made him. It's because he humbled himself in obedience to the Father. That's voluntary, okay? That's his personal attitude of self-abasement. The word humble means to lie low. Before God and others, he was willing to become the servant, the slave of God, the slave that was going to accomplish the Father's will, for sure, of redemption, but it was his decision as it were. And you see this especially during his arrest, his trial, his mocking, the false accusations, you know, the beatings, the scourging, he never got bitter. He never struck out. He never took back the use of his uh, omnipotence, his all power to destroy everybody. He could have called a a legion of angels. He didn't do that or 10,000, whatever it says. The point is he he remained. He was a true servant. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes when we, oh yeah, we'll be the servant until it gets a little tough and then we like want it back. Oh no, wait, that's too much, God, you know. And yet he went the whole distance. Never self-assertive, never self-seeking, even in the midst of the crucifixion crucifixion itself. In fact, Paul Rees said this in in his commentary. He says, look at him, this amazing Jesus. Look at him again, dressed like a slave with a towel and basin for his menial equipment. He is bathing the feet of some friend's of, of, of his who, but for their quarrelsomeness, should have been washing his feet. He humbled himself. Don't forget this, cries Paul, to these dear friends at Philippi. Don't forget this. When the slightest impulse arises to become self-assertive and self-seeking and so to break the bond of fellowship with one another. Remember this. Remember our Lord. He stepped down. He humbled himself. Step number seven. By becoming obedient to the point of death, right? By becoming obedient. There again, it's obedient. God did not force Christ. This was his choice. You got to see that. This is his choice. Again, as man, Christ could represent man and die for a man. As God, the death of Christ could have infinite value. Sufficient to provide forgiveness, redemption, salvation for the sins of all those who would put their complete trust in. In his sacrifice on their behalf. You know, the question has been over the years how could one man dying on the cross for a very short time, six hours, provide salvation for innumerable people throughout all the the ages of this earth? How is that? How can you tell me that one man could die for many? Because that one man had, his death had infinite value. Why? Because he's the God man. See, we find that right here the God man. So he's obedient to the point of death. <coughs> now that's not how we would have brought Christ in this world. <coughs> I mean, think about this. If we were God and we sent our son and, and he was going to this little dirtball thing, rebellious planet called Earth, oh no, he would have had a, a royal welcome. He would, have, he would have been born at the, the best of hospitals and, and he would, his, his education would have been paid with the best of the teachers, and he would have lived in the palace, and everything would... That's not how God did it. Because what did that show? His absolute humility. He came, and nobody even knew who he was. If it wasn't for the fact of the illumination of the Spirit by angels and God's voice, and all, you wouldn't even have known who he was. Total obedience. And then finally, step down. Last one. Even death on a cross. I mean, to a person... You know, that went God on a cross? Deuteronomy 21, it says this, he who was hanged on a cross is under God's curse. On a tree, actually, the Old Testament says tree, but the point is the Jews looked at the cross and the tree and Deuteronomy 21, and that's why Christ's sacrifice was such a stumbling block to the Jews, because they could not, that was like a rock in their throat. How could God... Die on that cursed tree, because it shows the humility and the glory of Christ see that 's the final descent because the cross it was it was developed by the Phoenicians, they think, or the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans, but the cross represented the most horrifying, the most humiliating, the most excruciating, painful, shameful death imaginable i mean they would they would literally you know. The nail and the, the feet and the hands. You know that. You understand that. But we always think high. No, no. It usually was eye height. The person being crucified could look you right in the eye. The idea was, this is what's going to happen to you if you go against Rome. And their legs would be crooked just enough where they could push up because if, if suffocation happened, then, then obviously the torture ended. And they wanted this to go on for days. Many times people would hang on a cross for three, four days. And every time that you would pull... It would just be these shooting pain because it was against your tendons and nerves, ripping, tearing, just to get a breath. The glorious God came, and he didn't die by execution or beheading or being strangled or being hung on a cross. And it was planned by the Father so that our sin, because he was the God, not because of the instrument of torture, but the instrument of torture showed how humble he was. But because he was a God-man, his, his, his death had infinite value. I like what John Wolver, the theologian from Dallas, said this, How little our sacrifices, our acts of unselfishness, and our suffering the slights of men seem in the shadow of that cross. How insignificant the little things we have to endure in light of the cross. That's the story of the cross. That's the story of Christmas. That's the true story of Christmas. Christ coming down and taking upon the sins of humanity of those who would receive him on the cross. Have you ever received Christ? Turn from your sin. Turn from your selfish, sinful, my, it has to be me, to Christ repenting and turning to him and saying I am damned and rightfully so I, but I need a savior, I need forgiveness I need to have my sins forgiven and the only place that they can be forgiven is Christ on the cross because you're the God man have you ever done that? like a beggar begging and you know what the great thing is as many as received him to them he gave the right to what? become children of God you go to Christ, you will forgive. What are the results of Christ's humiliation? Just let me bullet them. First of all, voluntarily humble themselves should produce humility in us. As we read and study this passage for the next two weeks, it should say, you know, Lord, help me to be humble. Make me humble. Let me see it in, in what Christ has done and, 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 and be willing to be self-sacrificial. It, it should create humility in us. The second thing is that this, according to verse 2, Humility ought to produce unity. Same mind, same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. It should. Humility creates unity. Number three, this this humility ought to produce selflessness towards others. That's actually the exhortation of verse three. Doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the motivator. What? Regard each other as more important than ourselves. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Be other-oriented, other-centered. And when, when I say centered, I don't just mean thinking it, but actually doing it. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look, out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's serving. So, it's not, so humility builds unity. And with unity, I should have a perspective of selflessness. And with that selflessness, I should be willing to serve. I, I serve God and I serve others. And it's all because of why? The illustration of Christ. Going to the cross. Paul says, listen, you look to the cross and that will break you. You look to the cross and you, that will save you. <laughs> but as Christians, you look to the cross and that will transform you. Because now all of a sudden our little petty differences and our little petty selfishness and everything else just gets crushed when you see the glorious Son of God coming to this earth in eight different steps going to the cross. And he's doing it for the Father's will. But wait, he's doing it for You! Lord, forgive us for those times that we haven't sought to glorify you and glorify ourselves, right? Lord, let us live for you. Let us live for you. Just remain seated, if you will.